Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, finally in Las Vegas. I've been looking forward to this trip for so long. As you guys know, I've been counting the days uh, until I could finally get to play some tournament poker. And I'm here, and I've become a circuit grinder. I, <laughs> I, I never really wanted to play in these circuit events, mostly because the rake is so high. Like For example, I've been playing $400 buy-ins where only $330 goes to the prize pool. And as an old school player myself, like when I started playing tournament poker, the standard rake was 10%. So that's a big difference. And so for that reason, I've mostly avoided the World Series of Poker circuit events. But I just did not want to play at the Venetian. And there's not much else going on right now in terms of tournaments that interest me. So I'm at Planet Hollywood, <laughs> which is, uh, I, I don't know if Planet Hollywood should be doing poker tournaments. Uh, they, they just do a lot of things wrong. Like one thing they do is uh, they have multiple tournaments starting at the same time. So uh, the you'll hear the blind levels going up for the other tournament around the same time as your blind levels are supposed to go up. Whereas I think with a little experience, they can learn to stagger that just a little bit more so that everyone's not constantly being confused by announcements over the loudspeaker. Uh, you know, they don't have the greatest dealers. It's not the most professional poker establishment in the world. Uh, uh, the seats are horrible. There is a lot that this rake is not paying for that it should be. Uh, nonetheless, I'm a sucker. I guess there's one born every minute. I'm grinding away. I'm playing basically a $400 tournament every day up until the uh, main event, which is uh, 1700 and I think $1,695 of that goes to the house and $5 to the prize pool. The only days I won't be playing poker in the coming week are when I'll be performing... Friday night in Las Vegas with Joe Stapleton and others, uh, many, many others, actually. It's going to be a great show, a packed lineup of really talented comedians at The Space here in Las Vegas, Nevada. Please come this Friday, the 22nd of November. I hope you can come visit thespacelv.com for tickets. And if you are going to be in the Southern California area, this coming Saturday, November 23rd, Daniel Negranu and I are the special guest co-hosts. Okay, well, he's the special guest co-host, and I'm friends with Matt Stout, so I get to be uh, involved as well. Uh, <laughs> it's another charity series of poker event this Saturday in sunny Southern California. Actually, it's in Newport Beach. Um, you can visit the charityseriesofpoker.com website for more information about that we are doing this one to benefit 
a really great organization called Mickey's Miracles. It's a dinner, there's a show, and of course the uh, poker tournament in which I will be a bounty. So if you can knock me out, and believe me, it's not hard to do, uh, you get some kind of prize for that. I'm not exactly sure what they're doing this time. Cash or prizes or both. Uh, So definitely want to come and play with me and knock me out of that tournament. Mickey's Miracles benefits children with epilepsy. So a really great cause, as I mentioned. So I'm grinding away. I'm getting your emails, your tweets. I appreciate you guys so much. Uh, It feels good to know that you're all listening and digging what we're doing here. I'm so grateful to Tournament Poker Edge for giving me the opportunity to have this platform. And, you know, my goal each and every week is to entertain you and help you become a better player. Uh, I know many of you are probably already better at poker than I am, but I thank you guys for listening as well. Uh, (laughs) And I appreciate all of your uh, criticism of the flawed logic that I sometimes have. You know, I (laughs) I never claim to be the best player in the world, but uh, I have studied the game a lot and I'm always learning more about it. And sometimes it really feels good to learn even from some of you. So don't feel like your tweets have to be complimentary. Don't feel like your emails have to tell me how great I am. I don't mind a little, you know, constructive, and let's use that word, constructive criticism uh, of the podcast. It's just nice to interact with everybody. And uh, I I try to respond to everything I get. So at Clayton Comic, or if you prefer, although I don't prefer, but if you prefer, you can email poker at ClaytonFletcher.com. So here's a hand that I played in one of these $400 Planet Hollywood circuit events. This is just a standard $400 circuit event. Some of them are six max, some of them are double stack. Turbo, they do a lot of different gimmicks. This is just one of your uh, regulation, run-of-the-mill, nine-handed, six-max tournaments. I do believe it had a $50,000 guarantee. Yeah, it definitely had a guarantee. I think they all do now. Good move, by the way, by the WSOP. They probably saw they were losing market share to casinos that did offer guarantees, and they finally started doing that themselves. So... You know, knowing that for $400, you're at least going to be involved in a, a tournament with at least a, a five-figure top prize is nice, you know. This hand comes from the 400-800 level. There, it's 4-8 with an 800 big blind ante. Uh, we're doing great in this tournament. We started with 15000 in chips like three and a half hours ago. And we now have like over sixty. We had like 62000 at this point, there were 120 players left. They paid 35, started with 230 players. Yeah. So we're in the big blind with the Queen of Diamonds, Nine of Diamonds. Now, before I discuss this hand, uh, I want to tell you a little bit about the table. Now, here's what I've seen. This, this buy-in level is a little bit lower than most of the tournaments that I play. I tend to hang around the $1,000 to $3,500 level, leaning way more often towards the the $1,000 buy-ins, $1,500. Kind of the circuit mains are 
about where my wheelhouse is, like around $1,500. That's one reason I always enjoy the Aussie Millions, which I will not be attending this year because I'll be in Las Vegas performing the week of the Super Bowl, but I'll, I'm sure I'll be promoting that soon enough. I don't want to get sidetracked here. So I want to talk a little bit about the difference between the uh, the mistakes that players make. Like when I'm in a, a typical tournament that I would play, say it's like a 1K or a 1500, uh, many times when I'm betting, I'm doing so hoping that my opponent doesn't raise. So I find myself in this position a lot due to my playing style. I mean, I'm fairly aggressive. And so I often don't have the nuts when I bet. And when you bet without the nuts and you get raised, you often have difficult decisions like how do I respond to this raise? Uh, I've noticed from playing in in a few of these $400 uh, buy-in tournaments this week that the raising doesn't happen very often. Many times I'll see a player, uh, maybe he's a pretty good player. I, I have a sense that he knows what he's doing. And I, I fear the raise coming. And then that player will more often than not just call. And I find that more often than not in the higher stakes, uh, there's raising going on. Now, this might be basic and rudimentary to some of you. But I think that if you are a... player, like the tournaments you tend to play are uh, at at this buy-in level. One way to distinguish yourself from the field is picking more close spots where it's close between raising and calling and go ahead and put some more raises into your range because the field is not doing that. And I sort of subscribe to the belief that if you do exactly what everybody else is doing, you're not going to win in poker, especially when you're paying this much rake. <laughs> Many of you are thinking, when is Clayton going to stop talking about the rake? <laughs> Why in my day it would have been 400 plus 40. <laughs> now it's 330 plus 70. That's over 20%. I might never stop talking about the rake. I'm the, I'm the rake guy and the M guy and I, I own it at this point. So this table is no different. My opponents are very passive. They are either tight passive or loose passive, but they're passive compared, of course, with the uh, uh, opponents that I'm used to facing in the tournaments I more typically would play. So I'm not saying they don't know what they're doing. I'm not saying that none of them are even winning players. And I'm also not saying that there's no raising at my table. I'm just making the comparison and saying that they tend to want to have it before they put a lot of chips in. So with that in mind, I think I'm at a pretty average table for the field in this situation. I've been running really hot and picking up a lot of hands, not doing a lot of bluffing, just really making hands and betting them for value. And it's kind of boring, but sometimes that's the right strategy for a given table. There were a few bluffable players at this table, but I felt like most of them were suspicious of me because many of my hands were not shown down. And I think when you have that type of table image, your bluffing frequency needs to be greatly reduced because the more they think you're stealing, the more likely they are to call you. So that was kind of the the dynamic that, that we had going on at the time when this hand occurred. 
Uh, so 400 and 800 within 800, big blind ante. I'm the table chip leader with 60,000. And uh, the player in third position, so two folds at a nine-handed table. And a, a fairly active player, not, not incredibly so, but a, a somewhat active player, makes it 1,800 to go and gets... Three callers. So now it's on me in the big blind. The small blind had folded. He was one of the folders. But three players who didn't have any chips in the pot decided to call this raise. And they were, you know, let's just say they're kind of a standard Las Vegas, kind of mostly regular guys who probably play a lot of these type of, of tournaments. You might find them at... Uh, the win on the weekend, and then they might play a, a $600 buy-in Venetian, and then, you know, th this are kind of the feel that I had for the table. Uh, some of them even seem to know each other's names, which I found interesting as well. Uh, so they all call, and their stacks, the opener, his stack was at, let's see, uh, he had 35000 and the uh, the callers all had around 40,000, which was the average stack at the time. So queen, queen nine of diamonds here in the big blind, I don't really see much point in doing anything other than calling. I mean, I think given these pot odds, folding this hand would be ridiculous. And I think that having this hand in my uh, big blind three bet bluffing range. Uh, you know, I'm not even sure I need to have a three bet bluffing range with this many opponents. I, am I really going to squeeze out all of these guys? <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, maybe in a, in a different tournament, maybe with different opponents and certainly with a different table image. Like if I hadn't, if I hadn't played a hand all day and then I finally woke up and made it like 6,000 here, maybe I would take it down. Um, but even so, I don't think that doing that with queen nine of diamonds is necessary. And it's probably uh, a bad idea from a theoretical perspective. I think if I want to have a raising range here, it should be almost all value due to my table image mostly but also just due to the fact that I don't have opponents that make a lot of folding mistakes. So I don't really know what hands I'm going to be able to plow through with a bluff. So I, I would like probably want to raise here if I had an ace 10 or better and maybe with pairs over sixes. And for some of you, that might sound like too big of a, of a raising range. But you have to understand, like all of those hands have a huge pot equity edge at this point in the hand over my opponents. Huge, because they're calling with a lot of hands. Even the raiser can have a lot of hands. So we want to raise for value and get at least one or two of these guys to call when we have even a hand as weak as ace-10. We're, we're doing so much better. Now, when I say you're your equity in the pot. What I mean by that is uh, if we could see all the hands on the screen like they do on TV, the percentage 
that I would have now that there are four other people in the pot. And then when I also involve myself in the pot, as long as my percentage is over 20%, right, that would be a, a, an average pot equity for me to have at this stage in the hand because there are five of us playing. Each of us, on average, should have 20% equity, all things being equal. So when your hand strength is, is stronger than average, you probably have a pot equity edge. Uh, so if I have something like ace-10 or pocket-8s here, uh, my number on that screen would be greater than 20%. So in theory, any more chips that I can get into the middle of the pot while I have this edge are chips that I should want in the middle of the pot, even though I will sometimes not like the flop. And now this doesn't account for the fact that I'll be out of position, nor does it account for the playability of such hands, uh, you know, especially with a pair like pocket eights. How many flops am I really going to like against four opponents? Which might make some of you say, well, that's why you shouldn't raise with those hands. Well, against these opponents, because I'm not too worried about getting a four bet now or a four bet bluffed right now or being outplayed after the flop. Uh, it, it does actually behoove me in the long run to build these pots when I have even a small pre-flop pot equity edge against tougher opponents who will play their position better and put me into tougher spots when I actually have the best hand and don't know it, uh, then that there might be a case for not playing that way. But I think in this tournament against this field, that is the right move. So with all that said, I just call, of course with the queen nine of diamonds and we see a flop it comes 10 of diamonds eight of hearts deuce of diamonds so we have a combo draw it's a gut shot straight draw and a flush draw so what would you do in my shoes first to act well we talk a lot about having a donk leading range and how you want to bet out on flops sometimes, uh, and that most of us don't do enough of it. Uh, if you told me that you want to lead and try to get it in if you get raised, I would say that's totally fine. And looking at the numbers, well, five players called 1,800 each, so that's 9,000. Then you have to throw in the... Uh, Small blind and my big blind ante. So that's another 1,200. So it's 10,200 in the pot. And my opponents have, you know, 30 to 40,000 in their stacks. So uh, it is conceivable that leading out, getting raised and shoving is profitable. But I think that the, the pot is such that if I want to turn this hand into a semi-bluff, I'm better off checking. And here's why. If you look at the numbers, like if I check and one of them bets half the pot, 5,000, and somebody else calls, I should be able to shove and win. The reason for that is that adding 10,000 roughly to this pot would put 20,000 in it. And then... I'm putting 
my opponent's in a position where he's already put in 5,000 on this street, and now he's got to call another 25 to 35 more. And that's a lot. And it puts a lot more pressure on them than if I rate, if I bet 5,000 and they raise, somebody raises me to say 13,000, well, now he might feel pot committed, even with top pair. So this is kind of my thought process when deciding whether to lead out here. I think checking is better in this spot. The main thing is I don't want you guys checking, planning to call and see what happens on the turn. Something I say a lot is that the flop is a good street for drawing hands and the turn is a good street for made hands. Kind of shorthand way of thinking about it, but all I'm saying is that when you have two cards to come, you don't mind having a draw. When there's only one card to come, the chances of that draw hitting are actually cut in half. So, let's do it here on the flop when we probably have a pot equity edge over anything. <laughs> Even a set, I think we might be, you know, we're probably not a favorite against the set, but we're we're definitely doing well against everything else. Well, okay, except maybe a better flush draw. Like if one of our opponents has uh, a pair and a flush draw or even just an ace high or king high flush draw, uh, those hands are what we fear if uh, about getting all in. And, uh, of course, a set is never pleasant when you have a draw because if the board pairs, then you're, you're just dead. So with that in mind, I do check. And the original Razor puts in... 3,500, which is a really small bet for the situation. There's 10,200 in the pot, as mentioned. And here he's putting in 3,500. Uh, it's still a strong play because he has four opponents. So it's reasonable to think that he would not continuation bet his full range against four opponents, right? How many of us do that? Like when I'm deciding whether to fire a C-bet, on the flop, one of the most important factors I consider is how many opponents I have. I'm not going to just try to blow everybody off the off the pot and maintain the lead in the hand just because I happen to be the pre-flop raiser. If I miss this flop with something like ace-jack with no diamond, I, I'm never betting. I'm just going to check behind and hope they all check through and mostly fold when people do bet. So... I think that we all kind of play that way for the most part. So, yeah, I'm not expecting this player to have nothing. So even though his sizing is pretty small, I think his bet merits uh, a certain amount of respect. He doesn't get much respect. He actually gets two callers. Now, again, these guys have between 30 and 40 ish in in their stacks and nobody's particularly short actions on me and i think my choices are between calling raising small ish and raising all in i think calling is actually okay because with this many opponents 
it just decreases the chance that my shove is going to get through. Uh, I think raising to, let's say, 15,000 is also okay, but understand that you're, you're so committed at that point, you might as well maximize your fold equity by shoving. You don't want to get called and then have the board pair on the turn or some other ugly card for us come on the turn and have to play an inflated pot from out of position at that point when your pot equity just got cut in half or, or even worse. So that's the, that's the problem with making any raise that's not a shove here. Now, it might seem ridiculous. Like, you know, he's only bet 3500 and I'm going to put in 35000 But that's not really the right way to look at it because now that he's gotten all these callers, now there's already 20000 in this pot. So let's go. I shove for, well, depending on whether anyone calls me because my stack is, is bigger. So the effective stack is uh, about two times the pot. So for the for my opponents, they now have to consider calling another thirty thousand to forty thousand just to see the turn in river. Now, what kind of hands are want, uh, want to make that call? Well, obviously, a set isn't going to fold for any bet. Same could also be true for uh, a hand like I don't know. Let's say a pair and a flush draw with the ace. Ace of Diamonds, right? If somebody, yeah, if he has the Ace Eight of Diamonds specifically, that's the only available pair and flush draw combination. So that uh, that I'm worried about. I don't think anyone plays King Eight of Diamonds, and I'm not worried about any other because I have plenty of outs to beat those hands. I think Jack Nine has to go away uh, because we know Jack Nine doesn't have. A flush draw because I have the nine of diamonds. So Jack nine is priced out by this play, as is uh, nine seven, right? Open enders that can't call this huge bet. So that's the play I made. And I think my opponents really started to hate me after that. They all folded. That pot actually vaulted me into the chip lead in the tournament. As far as I could tell, I kind of on the break, I took a look around. A risky play for sure, but I think these are the kind of plays we need to have in our arsenal, especially when you have such a robust holding on a board like this and no one has shown great strength. I think this hand is actually more interesting if my opponent's flop bet gets raised by someone else. At that point, do we want to get it all in? Well, that's player dependent. I don't know if you're the kind of person that only makes that big raise with a set or ace king of diamonds or something, then maybe I should just fold my <laughs> combo draw at that point. Um, but, you know, like I say, those are the kind of decisions I have to make in the higher stakes tournaments that I play because that, that's where people do a lot more raising. This is like bet, call, call, and then what do I want to do? As always, feel free to share your thoughts on this one on Twitter, at Clayton Comic. So here's a hand that I played in the last level before the dinner break. 
this is a, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you right now, this is an interesting hand. I think you guys will uh, appreciate this one. So the blinds are 800, 1600 with the 1600 big blind ante. And we have about 100,000 in our stack. Um, so that's an M of about 25. There are 65 players left in the tournament. 35 will cash. 230 players started this tournament. So they are paying about 15% of the field. Our table has been pretty much what you expect from a $400 circuit event in Las Vegas. Uh, a lot of loose pre-flop action and fairly straightforward post-flop action. Um, if there's an exception to that, it's the player in seat three who opens from third position, so two folds, and then he folds. Our table is eight-handed right now, and it folds to me in the cutoff holding two black sixes. So... Let's see, putting some numbers on this, my opponent had made it 3,500. So blinds were 800, 1,600, and he opens to 3,500 uh, here in the cutoff. Now the players to my left, now this guy who opened, by the way, he has about 90K, so just below what I have. And we're both about two times the average stack. This tournament, you start with 15,000. So... To have it up to 90,000 or 100,000 by dinner is uh, pretty good. So uh, the players on my left, they're all sitting around 40 to 50,000. And uh, they're mostly tight players. The exception is the small blind who has been squeezing a little bit. So I don't think he's going to do that. This time, though, because he seems distracted by something on his phone. You can re-raise if you want to. I think the standard play here is to call. We're not playing strictly for set mining value. I believe that there are many flops that are good for pocket sixes where we can float a continuation bet and possibly take it down on the turn. So we're not strictly playing for set value here, but... Against this opponent, I think three betting is probably a mistake. This player, our opponent, the Razor, an Asian guy in his probably late 20s, early 30s, um, kind of flashy. He's got like a, a white jumpsuit on. He's a little bit dazzling. And he's got his girlfriend watching him and he keeps showing her his hands. Uh, so yeah, he keeps turning up the cards and she seems to be learning the game or whatever. And he, he strikes me as a player who leads with ego. So I think three betting him could start an unnecessary three betting, four betting, five betting war that we just can't continue with sixes. So with that in mind, I decided to call. The button calls as well and the blinds fold. So three to the flop, and it comes ten of spades, four of hearts, and three of clubs. Now this is a situation where 
we have a good flop for our hand. I mean, hot and cold, sixes are usually going to be good on a 10 high flop with two undercards. There are also certain turn cards, a five, a seven, that might give us a, a straight draw. A deuce would serve the same purpose. So with the chance that our hand is good right now and the chance that it could improve on the turn, I believe this is an above average flop. So we wait and see. Now, my opponent, whom I was watching, the Asian player that I described, uh, didn't seem to be too pleased with the flop on his face. There's something that you can call a micro-reaction, a micro-expression. The very first movement that you see on someone's face tends to be truthful, especially when that person does not realize that he's being watched. I saw a certain look of disappointment on his face, so I was surprised when he let out. Now, let's go back and do the uh, the math. Pre-flop, he made it 3,500 and got two callers. So there's already 4,000 in this pot, and now we just put in another 10,000 500. So let's call it 15,000 in the pot just to make the math easier. And my opponent leads for 3,000 into two opponents. So this is a tiny bet. It's 20% of the pot. It's especially small given that he has two opponents. In my experience, playing $400 tournaments. Players don't typically make this bet sizing with their overpairs. Occasionally you will encounter a more sophisticated player who has this particular move in his arsenal and he's happy to bet out hoping to get raised by an aggressive opponent such as Clayton Fletcher. <laughs> but unless he's doing that, this is just a desperate attempt to take it down, hoping that no one hit the flop. I raised it to 9,000, and there are several reasons why I'm raising here. Number one is I'd like to discourage the button from continuing in the hand and I don't think that he can call a bet and a raise without at least king 10 here and even that might be a bit dubious given the action so this raise should buy us the button for the rest of the hand if the original better decides to call which would surprise me by the way if he did decide to call because as I mentioned I thought he did not like the flop so, I made it 9,000, and I fully expected to win the hand right there. The button quickly folded, and now our Asian friend picks up his cards and shows them to his girlfriend who's watching. Gives me a look and shakes his head at me, 
mumbles something under his breath and puts in the call. All right, so this is a live read. I didn't think this guy was acting, but the best news was I knew his girlfriend wasn't acting and she had a worried expression. Now, of course she knows she's not supposed to let me know how she feels. So I'm looking for micro expressions here. Not like a sad look on her face, but she looks worried. I think that she thinks her boyfriend's in trouble and she's concerned. Now, would she be concerned if he had Jack 10? Maybe not because top pair is probably good, even against my raising range. But it just didn't feel like he had Jack 10 because he looked disappointed on the flop and bet a tiny amount. So given that that's the information I had, I was shocked to see him call my raise. So I guess I thought that he might be getting stubborn with something like pocket fives or, yeah, because remember, there are certain hands that he could have, pocket deuces even, pocket fives, pocket deuces, that can improve on a lot of turn cards, as I mentioned about my sixes. I suppose pocket sevens could be in his range here as well. But regardless, I was surprised that he called. So, the turn is a ten of hearts. So now our board is ten of spades, four of hearts, tray of clubs, ten of hearts. And my opponent checks again. And he tried to give me a, sort of an intimidating look that I felt was designed to prevent me from betting again. And at this point, I thought that he could have pocket sevens, pocket fives, or pocket deuces. Or he was a great actor and so was his girlfriend. And he actually had a stronger hand than that. Because he looked like he wanted me to not bet, I kind of follow the playbook that I... I, I my basic approach to poker <laughs> is to try to figure out what my opponents want me to do and then make every possible effort to disappoint them. So if I don't think you want me to bet, I usually bet. So we had added uh, 18,000 to the 15,000 that was already in there. So now into 33,000, I bet 11,500. And I went with this smaller sizing because I, I didn't want to lose a lot of chips if I happen to be wrong. So if I get check raised, it doesn't hurt as much as if I bet 20,000 or something like that. So having done that, I was very surprised when my opponent called the 11-5. I started to worry that maybe my read was off, but then I took another look at the girlfriend and she looked miserable. I think that she thought her man was blowing this tournament. So that gave me more confidence. Uh, I definitely didn't put him on an over pair at this point, or even a strong pair like pocket eights or nines, which would be pretty confident 
But rather, I thought, I was affirming my read that he had pocket fives or pocket deuces, something like that. The river is the ace of spades. And now, into a pot of 50, what is it, 58, right? Yeah, 58,000 now. My opponent checks, and I, I, I need to decide whether I want to make a bet here. Well, let's talk about this ace of spades. Are we at all concerned that our opponent has an ace? Absolutely not. I don't see how this ace could have survived this long. Okay, maybe he calls me once on the flop with ace-king, ace-queen, which would also probably result in the look of disappointment on the girlfriend's face when he calls my raise on the flop. But I don't see how those hands would ever call the turn, even with the paired board, even given that it's a $400 Planet Hollywood tournament. I just didn't think this ace could have helped our opponent at all. Also, because I was relatively certain that he didn't have a 10, I thought I can certainly represent the 10 or the ace or both. So when he checks again here, I need to decide whether to just check and show down my hand which I thought about doing because I really felt confident that my hand was good, but there was still a small part of me that didn't want to check it back and then see him turn over pocket sevens. That was really the only hand I was worried about. So I decided to bet, and this time I put in 40000 which I felt was enough to get him to fold his entire range which, of course, I don't want him to fold pocket fives or pocket deuces. I'm really trying to bluff target, if you will, the sevens that I'm worried about him having. So I can check back and usually win with sixes, or I can bet 40000 and pretty much always win with sixes. So I decided to protect against the fact that he held on this long with sevens and just didn't I just didn't think that he could call another bet with pocket sevens. So I put out my forty thousand and my opponent thinks about it forever. Maybe not forever. He thought about it for about a minute and said to me, you know what, I call. The dealer said call. So I turn over my sixes, fully expecting to see the heroic pocket sevens that I couldn't believe my opponent couldn't fold or didn't fold. And to my surprise, he mucked. So I I guess he called me with fives. I really don't know what else he could have had here. Very strange hand. Uh, This is not how I would play this hand in an online tournament, by the way. A lot of this had to do with being able to see my opponent and get a feel for what was going on with him and, of course, his girlfriend. So I thought that one was pretty fun, you guys. I hope you did, too. Anyway, uh, we end up making day two of this thing. 
So they paid 35 places and day two started with 15 players remaining. Prizes right now are pretty insignificant. It's like $1,000 or $1,200 or something like that. Prizes at the final table start at $1,600 and go all the way up to $18,000. So obviously, anytime you have a tournament that pays 15% of the field, a lot of the prizes before the final table are going to be pretty small. That's just the nature. Uh, if you have to pay everybody, then you can only pay everybody a little bit. So that's just how it is. Um, so yeah, I was definitely, of course, as as usual, I had my mind on first place and trying to maximize my chances of winning that prize rather than trying to ladder up and win a couple hundred dollars more for this or that place. Down to 12 players when this hand came up and the blinds were 6,000, 12,000 with the 12,000 big blind ante. So there's already 30,000 in the pot, about 160,000 in my stack. So my M was about five and a half. So a six-handed table, two of them remaining in the tournament. And my table has been uh, shockingly active. Um, One player in particular who has the button in this hand uh, has been pretty much involved in every hand, I think, except for one. And this is about 20, 25 minutes into day two. And he's just been going for it. I don't know if he just happened to have a lot of big hands or if he sensed that his opponents were afraid or if maybe he just was trying really hard to accumulate a big stack for the final table. Um, the average stack at this point was a, approximately 250000 So my stack has finally fallen below average and it was pretty much above average all day, mostly hanging around the 2x average level through throughout day one. When we got to day two, once I paid the blinds and antes, and I really haven't played a hand yet here on day two because as these guys have been going crazy, I keep looking down at like six dues, four dues, <laughs> and three dues, so I really can't get involved. So it's folded to the player I was just describing. Now, he's been the most active player at the table. He's got an above-average stack. Um, it, things are going pretty well for him. He's got, I don't know, maybe 350000 400000 something like that. So he's actually already in good shape for the final table as there were 36 million chips in play. You want to have a, a little more than 10% of the chips at the final table. That's kind of the shorthand. So 360 would kind of be the number that would make me feel comfortable playing the final table. Obviously, I'd much rather have a million or two million or 20 million, but you know, realistically... Uh, kind of if you if you are a type of person that looks likes to look at the numbers and kind of gauge how you're doing overall, uh, that might be a rule of thumb is that you want to show up at the final table with at least 10% of the chips in order to have a shot at winning. And obviously the more chips you have, the better your chance of winning all other things being equal. So anyway, this player opens again 6,000, 12,000. And before I looked at my cards, I said, you know, this guy has to raise my big blind. He doesn't know me. I haven't played a hand yet for the last 20 minutes, and I've just been sitting back and watching the show as these guys battle it out. So 
I did play with him a little bit on day one, so I'm not, not sure if he took many notes on me or not. Young guy with a, almost like a Johnny Depp mustache from Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe him. Uh, he kind of reminded me of Johnny Depp from Pirates of the Caribbean, except he didn't have long hair. Very young, 25-ish. Yeah, so he's he's been very active. I told myself before I even looked at my cards, this guy has to try to steal my blind. So I'm shoving on him with any king, any ace, and a lot of suited connectors and any pair, including deuces. So that might sound like a really wide um, risking my tournament range right before the final table to some of you. But against this player's opening range, which I think should be about 100% of his hands, I think all these hands are doing great. And we also have to factor in, obviously, the fold equity, right? So this player raises it up to 27,000. And I have, like I said, 170, 160, 170 in my, in my stack. So he's not calling with 100% of that range. So I think any ace, any king, some suited connectors, and any pair is a perfectly fine shoving range. I might even be turning a profit shoving 100% of my hands, which may sound radical to many of you, but if this guy's opening 100% of his hands, how many of those hands can he actually call with, right? So I can just be shoving, betting that he doesn't have a hand to call me with and that he was just hoping that I would fold as I have done for the last 20 to 25 minutes since we sat down today. So given all that, when he made it 27,000 and the small blind folded, I looked and my first card was a deuce. And I said, oh, come on. <laughs> I said, any, any king, any ace. Well, the second card was an ace. So uh, I think it's pretty much a no-brainer. I shoved all in. He called with ace eight offsuit, which uh, I think is correct. He called rel relatively quickly. What's the worst hand you would call with in his shoes, given the dynamics? A player who hasn't played a hand all day, shoved on you. So he's getting about 1.7 to 1 on a call. I'm not sure that he needs to be calling with all of his hands. I think he's, he, he has to have some folds involved as well. But he called, and I lost the pot and finished 12th in this tournament. Uh, it was fun tweeting about it and having so many of you showing me love and giving me the LFG. I love the LFG. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I really do appreciate you guys coming along for the ride on that one. I'm really hoping that before this week is up, I'll have uh, another whole episode of Hands That I Played in this series for a future episode. But that is going to do it for this particular episode. Appreciate you guys rating and reviewing and liking and subscribing and all of that as you do so often. And we read each and every comment, each and every review. And just keep them coming, guys. You are the best. We appreciate you so much. So for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening. Fold them, let
up, hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me. Lock in intuition, play the cards with babes to start. And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart. No, she can't read a mouth. Oh, the face. She's got to love no. 